You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It's 7 p.m. on Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. We have a special guest today, Professor Ryan Kahlo from the University of Washington. I'm joined today by uh, our regular panelist, Courtney Beekler, who I'll ask uh, to answer the question to all of you. Do you have any cool plans or projects for this summer? We start with uh, Professor Kahlo. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes with, with professors, uh, a lot of times that's when we do all of our writing <laughs> is over the summer when when we don't have um we don't have obligations to for for service and so um what am i doing I, i'm finishing a a white paper about priorities for technology and agriculture uh through the tech policy lab um i'm starting a project around how to recruit and retain professionals in the area of technology policy who are diverse and so I'm working with uh, one or more colleagues um, uh, who do, uh, you know, um, support uh, diverse individuals in, in different contexts in school education. I'm writing a book, uh, and so I'll try to write one of the chapters this summer on law and technology. So it's 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 a it's a pretty busy time um, in terms of writing for for us at the, as faculty. Courtney, anything going on? All right, so uh, I just started an internship last week at a, at a courthouse in New Jersey, as well as uh, three courses this summer, evidence, pro-rep, and advanced legal research. So hopefully at some point this summer, I will be able to read a book for fun. And I'm Seth Trott. I, uh, I also started an internship uh, in Harrisburg at a, uh, at a courthouse, and I'm, I'm doing this interesting project where we're trying to uh, deliver a fiber infrastructure to a, a rural city, uh, Cory, Pennsylvania. We're trying to do it using a co-op model. And um, so I just joined that team and I'm going to be working on that all summer. Tony Fernando tonight is the usual host, but his daughter Joanne has graduated from high school. So congratulations to Joanne. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail. And we'll ship anywhere, even if you are overseas. And just a quick reminder that the opinions here are not those, are, are those of the, uh, the panelists, rather, and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists present, former or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. On to the episode. Professor, we are here today to discuss an article you co-authored with uh, Daniel Citrone, The Automated Administrative State, A Crisis of Legitimacy. In this article, you discuss how administrative agencies use automation for decision-making. Some notable failures that have occurred, you describe a looming crisis of confidence, and you propose some solutions. So let's start with the uh, Arkansas Department of Human Services case study. Uh, could you describe briefly, or, or as long as you want, what, what Arkansas uh, DHS did in 2016 and how it affected Medicaid recipients? Sure. I mean, let me just let me just back up a, a, a second just to say that um, you know this project uh, uh, grew out of a concern that Danielle and I had, that Professor Citron and I had about the way that algorithms were being used, especially by states, in order to automate, you know, giving or calibrating benefits. And the reason that we came to, to be aware of all the problems that happen when agencies, state agencies, you know, um, uh, like, like Department of Health and Human Services in Arkansas, the, pro the, the reason it came to light is because of these litigators 
who would sue on behalf or challenge on behalf of, of um, individuals who, who were entitled to benefits to try to figure out how it is that these things worked. And what we found in a number of different states, um, and we use a couple of examples to sort of, I think that's why you're asking me about it to sort of, and I'll tell you in a minute, but like to sort of dramatize this for the audience. But um, what we found time and again would be there would be some kind of inefficient or perverse or just in, in an, an, an unjust result. And when you went to ask the state, you know, officials, why did the system do this? They would not be able to tell you. And so that was the, that's the sort of problem, you know, the real people problem impacting folks' lives. So the particularly dramatic example you're asking about is a system in which the state used to go to people's homes who were disabled and they would have a nurse go there and, and, and ask questions about how much services you might need from the state in-house. You know, how, how much services do you need in your home? Um, and this was assessed on a regular basis by a nurse who would go and he or she would have a, um, or they would have a, um, a list of questions and stuff. But it was a subjective you know, thing. You had to go there, you had to see people, you had to look at their environment, you had to talk to them. So I guess in order to save money or some, for some reason, the, the state decided to replace this system um, with an algorithm. And the algorithm would use, you know, kind of medical um, information and a questionnaire uh, and then spit out an amount of um, in-home in, in services that you might need from the state. And so um, the results were, were, first of all, categorically, people were getting a lot less services, a lot fewer services, a lot, a lot fewer hours of service. Um, and then when they began, to, and, and which in some cases was really debilitating for folks. I mean, they needed this and they were suddenly given. And when people went to challenge it, like Kenneth de Laban, who, who, who challenged this particular um, decision, they found what, what, what uh, he referred to as, what this litigator referred to as algorithmic absurdities, things that no human being would ever think made any sense. And one of the, one of the best, most dramatic examples of this, best in the sense of, exemplifying the problem and therefore being horrible um, was that there was a person who had had um, a, a foot amputated. They, they had to have an amputation and that resulted in decreasing the suggestion of services for them because they no longer were listed as having a foot problem. Right. And so when you see things like that, it's like you, it's like it, it's like satire. It, it's like something out of a dystopian, like a dystopian film. Um, and everybody who looked at it agreed it was absurd. But, you know, the, the, the truth is, is that the states did not quite understand how, how these things worked. Um, but it's not limited to one state. I mean, it's, and it's nor is it limited to one context. It's not just, you know, disability services in the home. It's teacher compensation, it's underlying um, disability in the first instance. We looked at uh, uh, no-fly no fly lists at the federal level. We just looked at all different, and, 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 and time and again, you would see an outsourcing of a discretionary call to an automated system, and you'd see some result that was inscrutable. 
I hope that's responsive, Seth. But that's that's you know that's why we wrote this paper was because of coming across these again what this what this litigant called an algorithmic absurdity. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I just want to add that this is we we've read a lot of uh, law review articles for this podcast, and this is uh, one of the one of the best written ones I think that we've read so far. So it was it was a pleasure to read. Thank you, Seth. Professor Kilo, I just have a quick question kind of on one of the topics that you had addressed. Um, so you had discussed the potential for money saving as um, one of the reasons for creating these algorithms. Is it possible that eliminating human interaction eventually is one of the end state goals or at least reducing significantly? Well, so I, I, here's what I think happens, Courtney. This is the dynamic, as I understand it. You, you have this agency. It's overwhelmed. It doesn't have the resources or the personnel to do the job that's expected of it, right? And that's because the legislature isn't willing to tax people or commit the money uh, at the rate that would adequately fund the agency. So the agency is desperate. And then someone comes along and says, hey, Hey, look, look, we have these really cool software systems and algorithms. And what we can do is we can take some difficult job that costs a ton of money where you got to send a nurse. Are you kidding me? To every single person who's who's disabled. We're going to take that. We're going to automate it all. We're going to automate it all. They usually say things like not only will it be more efficient, but it will be less biased than a person. And if you don't know any better because you don't know much about technology, this sounds like it's oh, my God, this is too good to be true. Exactly. It is too good to be true. And then they go ahead and they buy these things and they automate them and they think everything's fine, only to discover that it did not do the thing that it was advertised. Um, and this has become such a big problem, Courtney, that actually the Federal Trade Commission a few weeks ago issued a warning to companies saying, stop overclaiming about what AI, what artificial intelligence and algorithms can do and stop creating systems that are biased against minorities and other vulnerable groups. Um, and so I don't think that the end goal is to is to like remove human contact. I think the I think what it is, is it's, you know, it's the sorcerer's apprentice. It seems like a great idea to use a spell to like clean up the, you know, the, the cottage while the while the wizard's away. But then it gets out of control and there's nothing you can do about it. Or if you prefer Streganona, which is another example of that same dynamic. Right. That's what's going on, Courtney, I think. Are there any. Uh Positive examples of a, of a government agency using machine learning uh, or AI for decision making? And how widespread is the adoption of uh, using decision making software uh, in government? Well, I, I want to draw a distinction in your mind, and we do in the paper, between automating something that a human should be doing, right? Like determining whether someone needs care in their home or how much care they need. Um, or assessing like whether someone's housing is adequate or, or you know, et cetera, right? Automatically versus trying to make good planful decisions with the help of information communications technologies. And so there's been a couple of papers, Kerry Colionese and his um, co-author, for example, um, has a piece in, in Georgetown Law Review that's called uh, Regulation by Robot. Um, there is a report out of Stanford um, by um, Dan Ho and um, David Ingstrom, and then Kathy Strandberg from NYU 
that goes through all the ways that the federal government has been experimenting with machine learning, artificial intelligence. And in some cases, you know, it looks like it's helpful. And the, and the times that it's helpful is when it helps the it helps the agency understand its own environment. You know, it 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 helps the agency organize its information, try to predict trends. You know, um, uh, find uh, patterns. You know, for example, even discriminatory patterns. So when when AI is used inwardly in order to make better decisions that ultimately are still made by a person but one of the inputs is inputs from artificial intelligence it can be helpful right but it isn't always helpful um and it isn't always helpful for long and so there have been instances where uh it looks like the algorithms are able to predict trends in such a way that you can plan on the basis of it but lo and behold, that breaks down when the conditions shift. For example, there was a time when the Center for Disease Control would try to think about where to strategically place medical supplies during flu season on the basis of Google flu trends, which use search terms to try to predict where flu was ascending. And it worked really well for a while, and then it stopped working. And they quietly shut it down, and the CDC quietly stopped using it because it wasn't working anymore. Right? Or quant trading. This is the idea of investing on the basis of algorithmic determinations about um, what financial trends are going to be. Worked great for a while, outperformed humans for a while. And a few years ago, it stopped outperforming humans. And sometimes it got it worse than humans. Now it's doing a little bit better. Point is, you can't even rely on these systems to continue to doing the things even if they were performing well before. Um, but, you know, Danielle and I say in our paper, Professor Shitrin and I say in the paper, we're not Luddites. We don't want to, we don't think the answer is to deny agencies um, any access to modern technology. That doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But we've got to stop trying to outsource these critical agency decisions to software that the agencies and the agency officials do not understand. I'd like to just really quickly shift gears, if that's okay. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, when an agency does adopt this algorithmic software to make determinations, does the code itself remain the IP of the software company? Or who ends up being responsible for understanding how the code is making decisions? The developers, the regulators? Great question, Courtney. Um, sometimes there has been a problem where the code that is being used uh, is in fact proprietary to a vendor and then the vendor when asked hides behind trade secret and there's a great paper about this by rebecca wexler at berkeley um, the name of which i cannot remember at the moment but it is about how uh, in the criminal context there are these like sentencing recommenders or parole recommenders you know pre-trial detention uh, that ultimately are proprietary, and so, and so the the um, and so the business uh, uh, won't let you have access to the source code. But you know what? In other instances, that's not what's going on. You know, and anyway, like in litigation, you would think that you'd be able to, through discovery, get at things you might not get otherwise. It just sort of depends on on um, you know, it just dep it depends on what the what. How a, call, how a court resolves the conflict between trade secret and discovery, which is, again, the, the purpose of Rebecca's paper. But, um, 
anyway, it's not even that. It's that the agencies who are deploying these these software systems don't understand how they work, and they can't explain it to you. And and it, even though they could access the code, or or, or not, I mean, they just don't get it. They don't understand how. I mean, you know, if I saw a bunch of code, I don't, I wouldn't understand what the heck it meant. And so what had to happen was that these litigants, again, these lawyers, like 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 Kenneth um, De La Bon, they they would like go in there and like just try to sort it all out. They'd like just pour over the algorithm and pump a bunch of information, see what happened. So just try to just try to catalog the way that the system worked. And then so as to be able to interrogate um, in deposition or on the stand, these officials about how the stuff worked. The officials did not understand it. Sometimes even the people who built the systems did not fully understand how exactly why the system came to the conclusion that it did. And we argue that not only is that bad because like, hey, it's it's hard to hold people responsible if you can't figure out what the, why the system did what it did. Um, it's also bad because the very reason that we're comfortable having big bureaucratic agencies do so much in the world, the, the, the reason we're comfortable have delegating what otherwise would be legislative authority to federal and state agencies is because those agencies are a repository of expertise. But they're supposed to be expert. Congress is not so expert in uh, environmental protection, so it creates the EPA. Congress is not so expert in communication, so it creates the FCC. They become repositories of expertise. The other reason we do it is because the world is complicated and dynamic, and these agencies are supposed to have the kind of flexibility and discretion to change with the times and adapt and so on. By, by taking the functions that have been relegated to them, delegated to them rather, and re-delegating them to software systems that they don't understand and can't change, not only are they making it harder from a due process perspective to challenge outcomes, but they are undermining the very reason that we delegate what is otherwise congressional or you know, you know, state lawmaking authority to agencies. And that's the move that Danielle and I make in this paper that I think is a contribution. We both of us, and especially Danielle, have written extensively in the past about how like, it's a due process concern to have some inscrutable algorithm make a decision about you and you can't challenge it effectively for lots of reasons, right? And that's what Rebecca Wexler's written about, and Danielle has, and Kate Crawford, and Jason Schultz, and Joshua Kroll, and many, many, many people have written about um, the due process concerns about it. So we step back and say, yeah, but there's a deeper, or at least a deep legitimacy issue here as well, um, which has to do with the way in which redelegation to software undermines the very rationale for the aid, for the for the administrative state, and that's why it's called the automated administrative state a crisis of legitimacy. Does that make sense to you guys? By the way, I want to make sure that we get this one right. So Seth and Courtney, does that? You, you, follow, you follow what I'm saying, because if you haven't taken administrative law, it may not be so so clear, but does that make sense? It does, yeah, absolutely. Because I teach administrative law, and like one of the first things I talk about is something called the non-delegation doctrine, right? Which is the idea that the Constitution told Congress it was supposed to make the laws, and here Congress is giving it this power to some other agency that isn't Congress. And then we hear why that's not a problem, and it's because Congress can't do the regulating itself, and it's not an expert, and needs something more dynamic, more expert. And then the courts are like, okay, fine, I guess that's right. 
And then those agencies turn around and throw away that expertise <laughs> and that discretion with both hands, right? Anyway. So the courts generally give deference to uh, agency decisions that are not arbitrary and capricious. If an algorithm is making decisions, is that algorithm entitled to the same deference? And is there a difference in the deference uh, due to a machine learning algorithm which detects fraud versus one which functions on like hard-coded uh, known parameters? So, um, yeah, no, no. So, I mean, look, you know, agencies get um, uh, deference. Uh, 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 so federal agencies get deference of different kinds depending on what they're deciding. Okay, if they're making an interpretation of law, they get, you know, either Chevron deference if they're interpreting their own animating statute or else our deference, also called Seminole Rock deference, if they're interpreting the regulations they, they promulgated, even if they have basic understanding of the space, but they don't enforce a rule or a, or a, or a, a law, they get um, so-called Skidmore deference. They also get a lot of deference for factual determinations that the agency made. Right, and so those have to be supported by substantial evidence on the record as a whole. Um, and then, as you alluded to just now, Seth, they 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 get a basic arbitrary and capricious standard of review under the um, under the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, for the decisions that they actually make. Right, but but with an algorithm that they don't understand, and they you know what I mean. And and it's like what happens is that is that is that when they buy that algorithm, that is construed to be outside of the ambit of the, of the review of the courts. The APA does not generally review a procurement decision that's viewed as being internal. Do you see what I mean? And they also are given wide latitude about how to set the processes for their um, uh, decision-making processes, and you know, it's, in fact, it's it's uh, it's not entirely unreviewable, unre unre but but there's case after case after case that gives these agencies wide latitude in terms of what kinds of processes are behind adjudication and formal adjudication, in particular, uh, informal rulemaking. So, you know, all that deference, but then at the end of the day, um, what what the agency does is it says we made this decision and we made this decision on the basis of this inscrutable algorithm right um a court will then have to disentangle whether or not making a decision on the basis of what this algorithm said is is basically uh uh supported by uh substantial evidence you know on the record and also whether it represents something that is um arbitrary and, and capricious um and so you know i would argue that they should not get deference you know i mean for 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 themselves merely deferring to um a machine but the problem and this is something that danielle citron pointed out years and years ago in her piece technological due process the problem is is that there's this imperfect fit between say rulemaking and the process you have to go through in order to make rules and then translating those rules into code for purposes of automation and software right and danielle points out years and years ago that when you when you take a decision of an agency that has gone through the appropriate notice and comment and you try to automate it the coders the software you know coders themselves they make subtle changes to the law because 
they don't understand it or it's needed for the automation, you know what I mean, and, and so on. And no one has the ability to comment in any way on those subtle changes. But then they get embedded and reified in the software, right? And so what, what, what the concern is that it becomes fundamentally unchallengeable. Again, that's not actually the topic of this paper, but I'm just telling you, like, that, that's like a major problem that many people who have looked at this have said, you know, th these look like these are mere procurement decisions, or they look like they're, uh, uh, what, what do the agency decide to buy? Or they look like they're mere decisions about whether just to use discretion in order to enforcement, so-called prosecutorial discretion, or they look like this or look like that. They look like they're merely generating uh, evidence for the record. But hidden in that, you know, is all, is all of this stuff that fundamentally becomes sort of unchallengeable. And so that's, again, that's not the topic of my paper, but uh, with Danielle, but it is a, a longstanding under, un, insight in the field. Um, something that I discovered when I was looking into public health policy a few years ago is that often regulatory agencies uh, require a public comment period when changing how they operate. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, um, does adopting algorithmic algorithmic decision-making generally require a public comment? And if so, do you see where the comments are typically geared toward anticipating the problems that can come from this? Or do the comments typically just tend to be uh, calling for the benefits at lower costs? Or, or are these public comments not even required for this change at all? So, so a number of, Cordy, that's another good question. The, 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 the truth is, is that a number of scholars have argued that there needs to be more accountability in procurement, right? So for example, Deirdre Mulligan at Berkeley um, has talked about the import, how procurement is a form of policy, like what you buy affects your policies, right? I mean, so um, she's not necessarily limiting the, her, the scope of her work to just algorithms, but they're one example. Um, Andrew Selps at uh, UCLA has argued that agencies should perform algorithmic um, impact assessments in order to figure out, you know, what effects that these algorithms might have on, on, on the regulated entities and the environments that they regulate. Uh, Catherine Crump has talked in the, in the, um, in the law enforcement context about the importance of, uh, of procurement. But, you know, the reason that these scholars had to write these papers <laughs> is because, you know, generally speaking, procurement is not governed by it. So, okay. Again, Admin 101, and I apologize, but Admin 101, right, Administrative Law 101, talks about where the source of authority is. According to people can't see Courtney, but she's got a look on her face like, I, I either have to take Admin or I've taken it already and I do not want it. And my students would also have the same look, but I'll just <laughs> I'll make it brief and painless. Um, the, the, the sources of authority for an agency are either its own animating statute, the statute that Congress wrote for it, let's say, or the, the um, APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. Neither the statutes for these agencies nor the APA talk about procurement as though it's the kind of important policy that can get challenged by the courts, right? So when you go and you buy these systems and implement them, no one's challenged, no one's able to challenge that, really. Um, you know, there are, of course, there are procurement specifications for federal agencies, but they're not they're not part of like what you think of when you're when you're a, when you're an aggrieved litigant and you're trying to challenge what agencies do. It's not like you occurs to you to challenge 
I can't believe you bought that system, you know? So, so scholars are saying, well, we should take a closer look at that because you know, it's, it's in the purchasing of these, of these software systems that the agency is making these initial problems for us in terms of making it unchallengeable. And, 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 you know, by the way, like, we're not even talking about this, but like qualitatively in terms of lived experience, Imagine the difference for a disabled person living in Arkansas or any state, you know, Washington, uh, Oklahoma, wherever they live. Imagine the difference in lived experience of filling out some kind of thing online and just getting like a spitting out a result from some algorithm versus a human being coming to your house and like looking at your stuff and looking at you and talking to you about your needs. Do you see what I mean? So not only were people getting less services, fewer services, but they also just had this um qualitatively deeply different experience um and that's part of the loss too that wasn't too much administrative law was it i i feel bad i I... no no actually i i can't help but smile because um some of our listeners are not law students or attorneys i mean Hi to my mom in South Dakota. And so as you're discussing some of the, you know, the broad scope legal topics, uh, I just really appreciate it because that helps provide some of that, that knowledge that otherwise um, they wouldn't be getting. So thank you. Sure. So you propose one solution um, as, as requiring agencies to model through system changes rather, uh, rather than muddling through them. Federal agencies like the National Oceanic uh, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they, they model the effects of a regulation change by statistical methods sometimes. Do, do you think state agencies generally have the ability to do this type of modeling? Um, and, and, and would you want to potentially discuss, uh, you know, modeling through system changes a little bit? Yeah, so there's a super famous, I mean, you know, among uh, law and policy nerds such as myself, famous, um, a paper uh, that's called um, the, the, the Science of Muddling Through um, by Charles Lindblom. And it is a paper now decades old, and it talks about how hard it is for policymakers to solve all the problems that they might encounter at once. Right? He, he draws an analytic distinction, Lindblom does, between um, the root method, whereby you think about the root cause of the issue. You know, imagine a tree and you think about the root system and you think about all the things that it touches and, and whatever. And you, know, you, you look at it holistically, um, but that, that turns out to be too difficult. So instead, um, he defends the use of the branch system of governance where you go in there and you find out there's one problem and you try to fix that problem and maybe that problem gets fixed but maybe it creates a different problem and then when that different problem arises you fix that problem and it becomes this iterative thing where you don't look at all the variables at once you just look at the one thing you care about you know emissions oh but that affected price okay price oh but that affected you see what i mean like and so it just like you and then you keep kind of regulating and so, um, and this has been this has been the prevailing wisdom for decades and decades and decades. And what Danielle and I point out in the paper, and I have another paper I'm writing for a, a symposium this year, where I talk to talk about this much more extensively. But the basic idea is, 
gosh, I mean, there are video games when you where you can like simulate like a whole civilization. And when you make a little change, all that change like propagates and all of a sudden, like your little people that were holding, you know, uh, a musket, now they have uh, a laser gun, right? And so it's like, how are we able to simulate? And then when I looked into it more with the help, of course, of a, of a research assistant, terrific research assistant who used to be a computer scientist, um, what we're finding is that, you know, the state of the art in terms of how to model complex systems is improving. Right. And so we're now able to. And so my 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 point in this paper and, and our point, Danielle, and my point in the previous paper is, you know, maybe we ought to be expecting a little more out of out of uh, contemporary agencies that are able to leverage modeling complex systems. Now, for lots of reasons, there 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 are embedded biases and there are and there are limitations and there are false certainties and so on that go with that but the, but the basic idea that like we we're not able to model the world effectively so we have to just fix this one tiny thing and see what happens that's that seems a little outdated and so you had asked earlier seth about like well how can agencies use these systems and one of the ideas is let's let's try to let's try to model a little bit better let's let's try to let's try to predict a little bit better let's try to um let's try to think more in a multivariable more holistic way about the impacts of 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 uh, regulation on the environment. Um, I don't mean the, the climate, I mean like, you know, the regulatory environment. Um, and so that's exciting, right? Because I don't, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that AI can magically solve problems and I, don't, I hope nobody really thinks that, but, you know, clever forecasting has um, been a staple of the corporate environment for decades and decades. You know, um, it has helped corporations plan for the future and understand the consequences of their of their choices in the marketplace. It's pretty sophisticated, and it strikes me that governments are not fighting fire with fire in that respect. You know, but what we have to avoid is just senselessly, mindlessly automating things that should be done by people. These are completely different things. That's why we called it the automated administrative state and not like the artificial intelligence administrative state. Absolutely, yeah. And then just one final question, constitutional rights for uh, for highly intelligent robots or no? <laughs> oh gosh, okay, so I get that question a lot. You can see sort of there's a, a robot in the background and another one. Um, I've become one of those people where people know that I'm into robots and so like they give me robots and so like I'm this person who has like a, just a ton of robots in my office. It's embarrassing. But anyway, um, I get asked a lot being one of the few, not not so few anymore, but once upon a time, one of the few uh, professors who think about robotics and artificial intelligence in the law. You know what I mean? And so one question I get is, <laughs> are they going to wake up and, and you know, and, and is AI going to wake up and kill us? Um, and also, like, what effect does uh, in, in fully sort of super intelligent or human-like intelligence, um, what kind of impact does it have on the law? So um, I don't think that AI is going to wake up and kill us uh, anytime soon. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, the, the, there is a lot of overstatement and overclaiming in the industry you know, certain things work magically well. Like my son has a watch and I'm not kidding. He's got a watch where he can hit a button on it and he can pick a language, any of like hundreds of languages. And then he can say something 
usually something inappropriate in English and have it be translated into like Japanese or Italian or whatever. So I'll just hear in the other room, you know what I mean? No manjari fajoli or something like that, you know, because he's translated, you know, whatever it is, you know, don't eat beans into Italian. It's, it's amazing. It's like miraculous. Like, it's like, I can't believe it's even, it's like even better than like when we were kids, we talked about like, Oh, I wish I had like one of those watches that you could press and call somebody else and you could see him in a video and people are like, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. We'll have jetpacks by then. And like Jude has that he has, he has that, but he can also translate into any language. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's miraculous stuff. People extrapolate from that, that robots can do literally anything. Right. Or they extrapolate from that, that because they see a video online of like four robots dancing the Macarena, that that means that robots are, are hyper intelligent. But the truth is, you cannot extrapolate like that. They just do. Robots just do not have the kind of general intelligence like people. And there isn't even really a path to it. Like nobody even knows how we get from where we are now with this sort of you know, deep learning model and some of the other things we're doing to actual real intelligence. So I'm in the, I'm firmly in the camp of not anytime soon. If we did though, it would completely break like law and legal institutions. And to, and to see that all you have to do is ask yourself, like, for, for example, imagine that we get a artificial intelligence, right? And it's like super smart, and like super charming and everyone just loves this artificial intelligence. It's like constantly helping everybody all the time. Um, it, it's, it's friends with uh, Courtney's mom in South Dakota and they text and everything like that. I mean, it's just like, it's just the best, okay? And everyone decides, you know, I really feel like this robot would do a better job than anybody who's been holding federal office. And we think this robot, this, this artificial intelligence being so wise and knowledgeable and smart should be president of the United States, okay? But um, it was made in 20, you know, 29. So does it have to wait 35 years to be president? Because the president has to be at least 35 years old, right? Um, the truth of the matter is, is that the fact that we are living biological beings is embedded in law in a deepest way. And so when we talk about something having mens rea in criminal um, you know, circles, we, we're talking about having an intent to do something, which a machine will not have. If we're talking about, you know, some kind of behavior that's surprising that a, that a robot does that nobody anticipated, you know, that breaks foreseeability and proximate causation and tort. Like, the, 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 you know, as, as much as you can play games with, oh, I wonder if we could, we could apply this to robots, I wonder, in a deep way, our legal system and our legal institutions are assuming the affordances and biology of people. And so if ever there was a non-human entity that we wanted to give the same kinds of rights and expectations as a human, whether it was whether it were an alien from another planet, which, by the way, seems more plausible to me in light of recent revelations about UFOs than does a super intelligence um, or it's an actual you know, machine that we build ourselves. Um, we, we'd have to fundamentally restructure the law. It's, it, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that. Fantastic. And with that, we're out of time. Thanks again to our uh, guest, Professor Kalo, and our panel, uh, Courtney Beekler, and I guess myself. Reminder that you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquare.com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by Twittering suggestions to at squared law. And please like, follow, and subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student and want to join a panel, Get in contact by any method. Audio post processing by Mohammed Salim. Series producer is Tony Fernando. 
podcast adjourned.